I get to produce a dinner party. Uh, and I usually spend a lot of time researching, researching recipes and uh, kind of putting together this, and, and, it, and it's trying to say, no, taste this, try this. And um, if you're one of those eaters who usually inhales what you eat and you don't really even taste it, you, you know, you give something to a kid and they just, they just know it's good and they're like, wow, you just inhaled that. But I'm, I'm the guy who's sitting here going, no, 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 Do you, can, 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 you, can, you, can you taste the cardamom in that? Which happens to be my favorite spice. Or it's like drinking a nice glass of wine and saying, no, no, there's plum in there. Can, can you take? And so when you kind of prepare for a, a weekly dinner party, there's a nuance. There's, there's something really special. And then you, you get, like, if you've ever been a part of kind of a, a family gathering, you get excited about seeing people. Now, I know we're in the dead of summer, and we've got like six or seven families that are traveling because it's summer, um, except that there's something really beautiful about coming together um, and making specific declarations about who God is. Because uh, I can go through my wish list. I can go through my want list. Uh, I can go through my needs list. But there's something really good, actually part of our original design, um, to declare who God is in light of who I am. And so I am just so grateful that you've chosen to come and worship with us tonight and that you get to be a part of this family of faith. And um, we, are, we are small, but uh, it is beautiful. And so I've been kind of preparing some meats and um, kind of going into my pantry. And so there's some things that I'm kind of excited to share with you. We're in a it's kind of a summer series that I'm calling Summer Shorts. It's looking at some of the minor prophets. And the only thing that makes a minor prophet minor is simply ink. <laughs> There's major prophets who are probably more like me who are a little bit on the long-winded, verbose side. Minor prophets are really like succinct in what they have to say, but equally as poignant, equally as beautiful, uh, equally as used by God. And so I wanted to look at some of the lesser known um, minor prophets because each of them had their own personality and we kind of want to lump them all into this category of you're angry and you're reflecting God's anger and I'm about to get it. Like, like somehow uh, we're in trouble. And I actually think there's something way more redemptive, way more gracious than that. But before we get into the text tonight, I want to go through a couple of announcements. We're going to skip a couple of the slides and look at, in two weeks, we have a Church's Tribe weekend. And I got to say, um, our commitment to a laboratory is probably one of the things that I think is most significant. And the reason why I think a laboratory is needed is because we are called to be people of practice, not just of doctrine. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus and what he picked a fight over most, it, it wasn't like if people were actually like believing the right things, though I think doctrine is really important. What Jesus seemed to get most uneasy about, most sort of um, uh, argumentative about, was right living. And so as a community, I want to be committed to kind of this practice together. So we practice hospitality, or we practice compassion, or we practice uh, gratitude and, and community. And so we have some things coming up. I know um, uh, the West and the kind of Four Points tribe are planning a roll your own sushi night. We, we have um, some friends from the Burmese community that are pro sushi chefs. And so we just wanted to make faith and community accessible. In fact, my 
my standard, my, my sort of gauging the success of these weekends is, um, did someone come that wouldn't normally have come to worship? Because I think faith and community should be accessible, and not everyone's ready to step into worship. So uh, kind of help us put those together, help those make, make those successful. Um, and then uh, a couple other things. Uh, Clancy's helping put together a back-to-school party with side-by-side kids. They're doing a party um, in East Austin on Saturday, August 10th. And so if you wanted a laboratory experience with maybe some kids or as a tribe, uh, just contact her. Um, this time you don't need a background check to do that, but basically hosting a back to school party for um, kind of Title I underserved kids. And um, they've, got, they've got the party planned. All we get to do is show up. And uh, they've also asked for supplies. So if you're one of those people who's still sitting on your $50 and you want to help purchase, if you go on the website, there's some things that you can participate in and you can email Clancy and get some more details about that. And then thirdly, uh, November 1st through 3rd, we have a really great weekend um, planned for our um, second annual, I hope, uh, fall retreat. Uh, but we're stepping it up this year, and um, we're going to find some nicer lodging that's only about an hour away and burn it. And, uh, and so um, before you leave tonight, um, Bill and Connie had a road trip this week, and um, Connie went through and gave it the Connie approval uh, because um, she's, she's a woman that can't really make it up a lot of steps, and so she just needed to make sure uh, that this is going to work. Uh, and so if you have concerns, whether it be about kids or cleanliness, um, let me just put your mind at ease. It got the Connie stamp of approval, um, and they have been charged with blocking you from leaving tonight without having a conversation about your plans. And so we need some deposit money, uh, but it will be a great, great, great weekend. Uh, we're hoping to have four um, uh, log cabins that each have about four or five bedrooms, but we're needing to make some final um, reservations because this place books up. And so it's wonderful. Did I, did I, did I represent you well? <laughs> Did you want to add anything, Connie Sue? You, Connie, you are high maintenance in a very good way. <laughs> but it's a good thing. <laughs> oh, well, that's. Uh, yes. So. So. Uh, um, that being said, uh, if, if you would just plan to be a part of that, I think that'll be a really special time for us. Um, hey, I want to talk to you about the book of Joel tonight, and maybe you picked up a bulletin on your way, you want to jot a couple of notes, maybe you want to fire open an app or uh, your Bible, because uh, there's some things in the book of Joel, and this is, um, you know, like three chapters long, so you can kind of blink and go, what did that just say? And um, there's some really interesting things about the book of Joel that aren't like any others. Um, one, we don't know the timeline. We don't know exactly when it was written. And there's no specific sin that Israel committed that he's calling out. So immediately you go, oh, well, that's different. Usually they're really upset about one thing in particular, and they're going to nail him for it. And so this is more of a generic thing. Now, one of the things he does is he quotes about like eight to 12 other biblical writers. So there's an assumption being made because he's writing to the people of God that the people of God are already reading the word of God, that there's other books, uh, other prophets that they were already going to be knowledge of. So he does a lot of quoting of that.
But before we get into the text, let me go ahead and introduce it this way. Um, in September 25th of 2000, there was a 19-year-old boy that walked out of his house to the bus stop, took the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, and as he sat on the Golden Gate Bridge, he felt like he had really nothing to live for. His name was Kevin Hines. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Kevin Hines, uh, but this was almost 20 years ago. Kevin Hines says he was hearing voices, he was really discouraged, and the only alternative, the only viable solution for his life was to take his life. That was where he was at in his arc of hope. And um, he even put a sort of a test out there, because that's what people do, said, if someone would just ask on my way out there, how are you doing? If someone would just take notice, how are you doing? Then maybe I'll stop. But no one did. In fact, one person, even on those way, asked, would you take a picture of us? And so he took the picture, handed back the camera, and kept going. Well, he got to the bridge on the railing, and he looked over, and he leapt. What's interesting is he survived. Here, these 19 years later, he's still talking about it. The one thing that came out of this was, and he said this, he says, the millisecond my hands left the rail, I knew I made a mistake. And as I'm falling, all I could think of is, I don't want to die. I don't know how you have had moments of regret in your life. I don't know how you've experienced um, lies and, and, and voices and doubts and discouragement and isolation. But there is this human condition, whether you call it mental illness or not, that we all contend with. Well, here's the amazing thing. It's a huge drop. In fact, less than 1% who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge actually survive. And in the, it was built in 1937, and there's been like a couple of thousand people that have actually attempted suicide off the bridge, less than 1%. In other words, at that time, I believe that there was 24 other people that had attempted to kill himself that had survived. And after Kevin goes through his rehabilitation, after he goes through psychiatric care, after he goes through all of the things, he goes and he starts to visit all of the other survivors. They say that most bridges is about a 15% um, survival rate. The Golden Gate is less than 1%, but he wanted to visit the other survivors. And all of them talked about the exact same thing that he named instant regret when his hands lift the rail. Now, here's the amazing thing is he's in the water and he's got like fractured vertebrae and he's got a punctured lung and all he's thinking is, I'm gonna drown and I don't want to die. And it was minutes before Coast Guard got out to him, but there was, as he says it, a sea lion that came up alongside of him and kept him afloat. That's why he has the sea lion in, in his logo. And he's gone on to do documentaries. He's gone on to do all kinds of, he's spoken to like 30,000 groups. Uh, he goes into colleges. He goes into um, student groups, he, uh, youth groups. He goes into all of these things. And he's become kind of this prolific, like m motivational speaker. 
but he talks about that moment where he's sitting there and he's going, this was the biggest mistake of my life, and the last thing I want to do is be successful at it. I don't want to die. And the, the reason I, I spend the time in, is, is this, is that um, it's easy to ask when someone gets in this situation, who's to blame? This is where our cultural commentary is going. Someone needs to be at fault here. In fact, I even read that he's gotten involved in some advocacy work for the bridge to have fences, and it's just too accessible. And I'm like, wow, um, because now it's the city's fault, or you can blame the mental illness, or maybe you can blame um, the government, or maybe you can, blame, uh, you can blame God. But here's the point, two things out of that. Number one, I think we'll never find comfort in blame. We're in a society that's filled with accusation, but I'm telling you, we're a society in need of, of healing, and you won't find it in blame. But, but the other part of that is blame is never wisdom. And when we talk about wisdom, winder, wisdom always understands the world that God intended and wisdom and the hope for the ability to turn. That's wisdom. So wherever you find yourself, on a high or on a low, we have to understand what is the world that God actually intended, and where is my hope to actually turn course and experience that in ever-increasing ways. This is what I've come to understand. Sin, and we all struggle with this broken state, sin always um, creates immediate regret. And regret always creates levels of shame. And this is what shame does, is shame robs us of intimacy. Oh, and by the way, you're created for intimacy, which I would define as being known and fully known. To be naked and unashamed and, and sort of accepted, warts and all. And that's what God actually does for us. And God always has a way that seemingly provides interruptions into our lives uh, as a way to help us turn course. And so no matter how far you've fallen with injustice or with abuse or with abandonment or with bankrupt or with regret or with shame, the point is this, there's always a chance to turn. Now, historically, we have these Old Testament prophets that were always sort of standing like this saying, there's a better way, and their message was always collective. So as much as I want you to hear this on a very personal level this evening, I think we need to hear it as a church that God might be sticking his hands in the air and saying, wait, there might be something more or different or better. And so we need to be sensitive to being able to receive those interruptions. Now, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is sort of this nebulous, I have a hard time figuring it out, um, entity, but it starts to manifest as this kind of check in my spirit, this sort of prompt in my spirit, this sort of hesitation that I experience. In the Old Testament, we had the Holy Spirit that will always manifest in some form, like Pillar, by, pillar of cloud by day that provided shade as they walked through the desert. It was, a, it, was a, a, it was a pillar of fire by night that would actually provide fire as well as guidance. 
It was always in the form of, of maybe the wind, and we saw the Holy Spirit revealed in wind. And so once we have the whole, uh, in the transition with Christ in us, we get the Holy Spirit living in us. In other words, the Holy Spirit goes from occupying a location, like in the temple, holy of holies, to occupying the temple of God that is our lives. So there's this transition. The Old Testament prophets represented sort of um, a ministry or an aspect of the Holy Spirit trying to get people to yield and to turn. And so it pays us a lot of, like, it's in our best interest to pay attention to what the prophets are saying then and now. And so that's where we have the book of Joel. Joel stood up, uh, and, and so the prophet, like the Spirit, reminds us of who we are in light of who God is. And the nature of covenant relationship always means that God is infinitely and irrevocably for us. And if we could only return and renounce sort of our idols, if you will, like a jealous lover, God wants us to let go of lesser loves. And we looked last week at at the book of Hosea, uh, where that was a very poignant picture. Now, here's where it gets kind of confusing because Joel just feels like, man, he is on some kind of hallucinogenic drug. He's painting pictures of locusts. uh, And so it's really kind of tricky to understand the book of Joel. But once we kind of peel back the layers, it feels very applicable to what we're dealing with. And so his whole book, he talks about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is sort of this day of reckoning that's going to come. Uh, And and so he paints a picture of this swarm of locusts of which they've already have a reference point. If you're the Israelites, you know about locusts. What do you know? That God sent them among six other plagues upon Egypt so that what? It led to their deliverance. So the locusts were really good because it helped deliver them. But now Joel's talking about locusts coming for the Israelites and like, oh dang, that's not good for us. Now here's the problem. No one gets nervous about the idea of a bunch of locusts. Like that does not threaten us. That feels like, oh, a bunch of grasshoppers. That's pesty, but that's not like destruction. Except if you're living in an agricultural society and a plague of locusts is going to overtake you, it feels like someone's shutting down your electrical grid and you're not going to be able to get on the internet tomorrow. Does that concern you for how you do your job? Someone's going to like interrupt what you do and there's going to be a banking collapse and so everyone's going to be broke. Oh, oh okay, so that's, that's what locusts mean. You're like, all right, that would hurt a little bit. That, that would affect my day a little bit. It would affect my income a little bit. And so that's the picture. Now, here's the other thing, is that to an Israelite, the imagery of vineyard was always part of God's abundance. And the idea that you ran out of wine, like where Jesus did his first miracle, the idea that you wouldn't have wine was almost like a bad omen. It was like a curse. It was like you were not going to be blessed because there was no fruit of the vine. There was no abundance. And so it had sort of a negative connotation uh, as well as a practical um, limitation to it. And so that's where we find ourselves in, in, in the book of, of, uh, of Joel. So 
he, he kind of stands up among the people and there's been this plague of locusts that have come through and it's devoured all their vineyards. And he's using, almost like Paul Revere, riding through New England going, the British are coming, the British are coming. He's like, the locusts are coming. Well, they already came, except they, they might be coming back. And there's this call to repentance. There's this call to turn. And so in this picture, he says, he's, he's talking about this wake-up call. And the locusts, for them, it, it's hard because we don't live as farmers, um, but the locusts are our wake-up call. And we all have locusts. And, are, and what he's really saying is, Israel, you're the picture of the vineyard and the locusts have devoured your grapes. There's no fruit on the vine that is your life. And so he paints this picture. Here's the purpose of a vineyard to bear fruit and there's no fruit. So the vineyard therefore has lost its purpose. You Israel were supposed to bear great fruit and be the light to the nation and now you have nothing to show for it. This is a living faith. Just like last week when we looked at Hosea and Hosea had to marry this prostitute who wasn't done yet prostituting and they're going to have kids and she's still going to go out. It was a living faith. It wasn't a theoretical message. And so Joel living among them with no fruit, no economy, he starts grieving the thought and saying, listen, what God has created the community of faith for, what God has put us out here is to be a light to the nation and to bear great fruit, and there's no fruit. Whoa. Oh, oh, okay. So that's cause to take a walk through the vineyard. That's cause to do some personal examination, to take some kind of spiritual inventory. And, and he's, he's saying is this, if the vineyard has no grapes, the vineyard has lost its purpose. See, you're made for this, but you're this. And, and so this locust, the locusts are this outward display of this really profound spiritual problem. Um, Israel, you're made to bear fruit, but you're not. You're supposed to be a vineyard for all the world to taste and see what the Lord is like. But no one's tasting and seeing. This is why we have kind of come together and wanted to have a, a church of practice. I love coming together for worship. I love coming together. But we need to have a more integrated approach to how we host faith and conversation and gatherings. That's why we do what we do. That's why we've dedicated the first Sunday of every month to kind of be the church outside of these walls. Because I want you to be able to disciple your kids with this living faith. I want you to have new language to talk about the heart of the Father. But I also want you to have this growing faith within you that you experience, hey, I don't feel like being a giver, um, but I believe God is generous. So I wanna be generous. And so we paint this picture, and if we see, you know, church, we're made to be fruitful. This is John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. In me you bear great fruit. And he talks about abundant life. See, fruitfulness is always a sign that we're abiding in Christ. You know what I mean? We don't use that word abiding. I'm abiding it with my kids. I'm abiding at home. No. But abiding with Christ means that we're current in that relationship with God, that we have some kind of sensitivity to God's voice and his prompts and his leading in our life. And so fruitfulness means we're able to receive and respond to God's revelation. 
Have you had any divine appointments this week? Have you had any moments where you're like, whoa, this is like a holy pause moment. This is like a, a, a moment I feel like God's saying something. See, fruitfulness is always our ability to respond and, and, and um, to yield uh, to God's revelation. Um, but here's the thing. It, he says, if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. But if you're cut off from revelation, from repentance, from Christian community, you won't be able to bear fruit. It looks like this. I'm not a big flower guy, but there's moments during the year that I buy flowers for Laurel. I mean, you can, predictably, it's, it's sort of like a Mother's Day moment. It, it might be one or two other times beyond that. But here's, don't judge me. But here's really what's happening when you're buying flowers. You're, you're, you're buying things that have already been cut off the vine. They're already dead, right? And when I buy them, they look really good because they've been freshly cut, but they've been cut off from the source. And so when I buy them, I'm looking for the ones that haven't fully bloomed. I'm looking for the ones that are still more in like a bud. Because once I can get them home and put them back in water, I can get a little more time out of them, maybe another week before they'll blossom and then they'll just wait. But they're already dead. That's the point. Sometimes we can get cut off from God's revelation, cut off from God's word, cut off from Christian community, cut off from responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and we can still look good on the outside, but we've been cut off from the source. And it's only a matter of time. The clock is ticking before we're going to be trying to write checks that we can't cash. That's the picture. And so um, the fruit, I believe, should be our primary criteria for how we live our Christian life. So some of you are familiar with the, the, the verse that comes out of Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Um, but while locusts have a way, uh, you know, the goal of our, excuse me, the goal of our Christian life isn't our happiness, but it's the divine union with God. It's oneness not to be cut off from the source. And when there's that kind of abiding in that, um, I think what comes out of it is, well, fruit. See, but when locusts take hold of our life, we know it because there's a lack of fruit. If we're called to self-control, but we lose it and lose our composure or we over-serve ourselves and drink way too much, that's not self-control, that's not Jesus. Or, or, you know, maybe there's things like, uh, it's apparent because we're not bearing the fruit. There's road rage, or maybe there's eating issues. There's pornography. There's credit card debt because somehow I've got to, like, make myself feel better, and spending becomes the only way out of it. The locusts are in our lives, and, and, and this isn't Jesus, but it is a wake-up call. Oh, this isn't fruitfulness. Th this isn't the fruit that I'm intended. And it's like, here's Joel, and he's like, wait a second. There's a vineyard with no fruit. See, as a church, we're not called to just have really good irrigation. We're not called to really have nicely trimmed vines. We're called to bear great fruit. That's the point of church. Uh, and so uh, we, we get this really clear image out of it. And so this non-fruit should help us wake up. Uh, and instead of fruit, we have locusts, right? I, I don't know how this metaphor works for you, but what does that mean? Well, instead of creativity, 
instead of offering your gifts to the body, instead of like doing what I think God has gifted you uniquely to do, we maybe, um, uh, instead of contributing, we, we, we become consumers. We come and we, we take, we receive, or maybe you've been called to generosity, but instead you can't let go of your money. You can't give of yourself or your time. Um, maybe instead of offering gifts, you're kind of feeling apathetic, I need me time, or instead of hard conversations that actually promote health, we, we, we avoid the hard conversations and enable. Like, that's not the fruit. Uh, maybe instead of forgiveness, we're just like, nope, I'm down with re re resentment because, and so this is the locusts in our life, and I think the locusts are just stealing our fruit. And the first part of any transformational process is waking up to these locusts. We can look good outwardly, um, but that's never God's plan. And you can have a good reputation. You can have a really good belief system or doctrinal statement. Uh, you can be a good person, but eventually things come out. And when it does, it just always reveals what's in our heart. So that being said, here's what he says in, in Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, he paints a picture uh, and he says, so now that he's got their attention, hey friends, there's no wine. <laughs> and he's like, oh, no wine, what are we supposed to do? And that's not just because they're like luscious or anything, it's because, well, that's our economy. And, and, and he goes through all these warnings about stuff, uh, uh, different categories, to the drunkards, weep aloud, to the virgins about to be married, weep aloud, to the vineyard growers, weep aloud. And everyone's like, yeah, that's pretty much everyone, you know? Uh, and he's like, this affects us all, what do we do? And he's like, well, rend your heart. And, and this is where he starts talking about in, in Luke, uh, excuse me, in Joel chapter uh, 2, verse 13, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity upon you. So the first thing is he talks about rending your hearts, not your garments. Uh, in this translation, it, it might say it a little differently. Um, Oh, go to the A, and he says, um, don't tear your clothing with grief, but tear your hearts instead. In other words, what he's saying is he's calling for genuine change. Again, not just this outward thing like, oh, you know you're getting, getting trouble, so now I'll turn back to God. No, 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 don't do this just because of <clears throat> this fear of God. Do this because you want your heart to change. And so there was a way that people would grieve very visibly, very publicly, and it would involve ashes and it would be tearing their clothes. Uh, we've seen that in different biblical examples of people just kind of, um, King David did it when he thought he was losing his son and then he did and so he tore all his clothes. This is just a, a kind of an ancient form of expression but really what he's saying is don't do it for show, do it like for your heart. Uh, and so, you know, and repentance simply means to move uh, to, to move, make a move towards aligning our life with God's purposes. And it involves both changing our mind and our, our direction. And so, again, Joel knows that repentance can be just for show and just to avoid getting in trouble. But God wants, God wants genuine change to stop their independence, stop their corruption. And, and so there's this new picture. In other words, Joel doesn't want them to just threaten them. He doesn't want to just scare the hell out of them, uh, but he wants to get people to respond. Why? Because God is gracious and compassionate, and he's slow to anger, and he's full of love. In other words, here's the way I like to say it. 
See if you can follow me on this. Because I had this conversation who was really questioning God this week, you know, kind of the idea of why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Is God doing this to me? And I said, you know, I don't think God does everything for a reason. I think God b- gets brokenhearted and frustrated because the world is the way the world is. But I think God is an ultimately a redeemer of all things. So that the things that are meant for evil or for not can actually be healed and restored and redeemed. But my point is this, and this is what I think he's getting at. God is so compassionate and loving. God is slow to anger. But the picture is this. I believe God gives each of us our free will. And even though we act like rebellious children, even though our free will opposes God, he sustains it. Why? Because simply this, there is no way to to associate um, God's love with obligation. God cannot and will not pre-program us to choose him. He won't, because the minute he obligates us to choose him is the minute it's not loving, right? It's sort of like saying, well, I want to be in a relationship with you, but I can't. I like you more than you like me. I I can't force you to like me back. There's just this engagement of our will, of our heart. And that's the picture of God wanting to be in relationship with us. And so there's a lot of stuff in this world that just ain't right, and God is furious about it. God is brokenhearted about it. God grieves like we grieve because that was not the world that God intended. But we also understand that we can turn because God is compassionate and he's slow to anger and he's loving. And so he paints this picture for us that it's safe to come home to him. And change from the inside always goes way beyond rules or fear of consequences or simply the need to please. Um, That's why he's not shaming them into just acting better. This is a really important thing to to give credit to a a, a prophet. And so he uses throughout this three-chapter book this picture of locusts who are devouring all the fruit. And he's saying, you're called to be fruitful, so bear fruit. So then he just kind of paints a picture of things to come. and And he talks about rather than a day of reckoning, we're invited to a proactive pursuit. And he says it this way. Um, he says we're encouraged to resensitize our heart. Now, a lot of times what draws us near to God isn't um, curiosity. What draws us near to God is usually crisis or tragedy or despair or something really negative. And what he's doing is he's inviting people and he paints the picture of a solemn assembly. Uh, And he says, blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. In other words, when you align yourself, and this is what I'm speaking corporately, not personally to you only. I'm speaking to us as the church. When you choose to align with the church, what you're doing is you're unifying your life like a sacred assembly, like a solemn assembly, that we together can bear great fruit, that we need each other to bless the city, that we need each other to grow like in like a vineyard and, and feed off of each other. 
there's something really significant about what he says is he said don't just wait for calamity and crisis to happen for it to draw near and he says call a solemn assembly and i would think it would be like we do versions of this it's when we go into lent and we say i don't use this language but i'm calling a solemn assembly i want to encourage you to live differently i want you to spend your money differently because if we do this together it will have a collective step of growth for all of us not just oh i'm personally growing have you ever gone on a mission trip and came back and everyone else didn't experience what you experienced it's really hard to sustain growth if you've had a life-changing moment and it was isolated it was sort of like it was it felt short-lived when you entered back into normal everyday life but if you go on it with a team when you go on it with a group and you experience that you come back and there's a shared experience and you can kind of live uh live it out a little bit more because there's support built in that's the beauty of being part of a church community so he says there's this uh, the solemn assembly is a collective confession or a desire to step in to say yes god we're here uh but we're called to be here and that's what really what we're doing as a church that's why when you say well i'm a christian but I, i don't go to church well okay um i think you're getting cut off from the source i think there's more growth i think there's a lot more fruit and then the other thing that he says is um is that he's he's playing off the image of locusts right because everything's been devoured by locusts i mean locusts everywhere you can't get rid of them and now he paints a new picture of what it will be like and he starts talking about this you know this messiah because all the prophets were talking about the coming of jesus but he says something else he talks about the holy spirit that's going to invade your life so whatever you feel inadequate with whatever you feel incapable of whatever you feel like is dwarfing your growth you're going to get the spirit of the living god abiding and accessible to you and so he says this in verse 28 he says then after doing all those things i'll pour out my spirit upon all people in other words there's this accessibility to do and act what comes supernaturally not just naturally to act extraordinary not just to do what comes ordinary and so he's inviting us and using this kind of contrast and say okay you know what it's like to be overcome with locusts now it's going to cover God's spirit within all people and so being committed to a church is the unifying of our faith and recognizing that God wants to work in us as much as he wants to work in me I didn't have to start a church could have done a lot of other things and I don't think I would have made God angry but there was something I wanted to do in the in the spiritual formation in this city um, in a community and create a pathway and I just said how can we how can we access and experiment with your Holy Spirit in ever increasing ways this is the one thing that I don't think people tap into enough we, we don't understand the role in the participation with the Holy Spirit. And I would simply, is simply aligning our lives with God's purposes. It's growing in a sensitivity, but we can't be cut off from God's revelation and responding to it. I think Christ gets revealed in community. And oh, by the way, we live in a city with roughly a thousand people a week that are moving to it. And all those people that are moving into Austin and into your neighborhood have a story. And it's a story of despair. 
It's a story where they're fragmented from their family. There's a story of abuse. There's a, there's a story of hopefulness, but there's a story of bankruptcy. There's a story of divorce. I mean, you know your neighbors. They're all moving in, and, and we get to be the fruit of the vine. We get to bear great fruit to those stories and, and, and be part of God. Did God mean for any of those things to happen? Nope. Can God redeem all of those things? Absolutely. And he wants to use us as part of his salvation. And so I hope you're encouraged by Joel's word. It's a little confusing when you dive in, you're like, holy cow, this is the book of locusts, except that he's painting this picture of a vineyard. Israel, you're called to be a vineyard and the locusts have devoured all your fruit. And I think we all have our own version of locusts, stuff that's robbing us of fruitfulness. I think we're called to be like the fruit of the Spirit says, and we live beneath that a lot of the time. And so I think those are just kind of reminders of the locusts in our life. And so my first question is, is what, what's your plan, man, just to abide in Christ? Do you have a plan? Super important. I think part of abiding in Christ is being a part of a community, but I think abiding in Christ, just like I said, I'm doing a little dinner party every week. Um, I hope this isn't the only meal you ate this week, spiritually speaking. I hope that there's some spiritual nutrition going on during the week. Let's just pray together um, as we just kind of reflect on these words and we'll just have a little bit of time of worship. Um, our Heavenly Father, I just, um, I'm reminded that you are slow to anger, um, you're compassionate, but you are inviting us to transformational process and that feels invasive. You're inviting us to rend our hearts, not just change the exterior of our behavior. You're calling us to wholesale change so that we can greater reflect the reality of you in our life. So I would just invite you just to pray, you know, what, what is your locus? What experience, what relationship, what event has overwhelmed you that maybe it damaged or affected your faith in God? Is there, is there something What's the locus you manage? An ongoing fear, a need, a tendency, a vice that limits the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. As we sing, I wanna encourage you to pray. As we praise, I wanna encourage you to just listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and name those locusts, don't, don't leave here without kind of having a feel for what might be blocking the role and participation of the Holy Spirit. Let's worship together.